first talk is by our very local uh, royalty, Queen Flavia Zodan, who's a fellow at the Sandberg Institute um, and a dear friend and colleague. And she will talk about coloniality of the algorithm, a research project and a series of lectures she's been doing at the Sandberg in the past few months. Please give them a warm welcome. A metonymy is a word or phrase that is used to stand in for another word. Sometimes a metonymy is chosen because it is a well-known characteristic of the word. One famous example of metonymy is the saying, the pen is mightier than the sword, which originally came from Edward Bowlen Lighton's play in Richelieu, the crown to refer to the king or queen, the suits to refer to business people. So along these lines, I like to talk about the algorithm in terms of technology and different forms of problem-solving techniques. Algorithm, an unambiguous specification of how to solve a class of problems. Algorithms can perform calculation, data processing, and automated reasoning tasks. They are computer functions and tools, in a sense, but they are also the kernel over which all of our digital societies operate. Today, I want to explore coloniality as a core component of technology development, and in turn, how coloniality further expands through this technology. Additionally, I would like us to question these discourses about technology and the uses of it from the perspective of systems of domination and control. We need to get past the marketing jargon to question the development and the use of technology that sustain systems of oppression. However, to get to that point where we can discuss contemporary uses of technology, I want to trace a brief genealogy of these uses of technology as part of the colonial project started with the colonization of the Americas in the 15th century. Let's start with the basis. What is colonialism? The policy or practice of acquiring full or partial political control over another country, occupying it with settlers and exploiting it economically. Now, of course, this definition is vague enough that it refers to countries and we are immediately led to associate this with nation states in the contemporary sense. However, colonialism in its original incarnation was based on occupying territories that were not recognized as countries, but instead portrayed by the colonizer as disorganized areas that were up for grabs. It was Edward Said in his seminal book on Orientalism who said that before their explorations of the Orient, the Europeans had created an imagined geography of the Orient, predefined images of savage and monstrous places that lay beyond the horizon of the known world. During their initial oriental explorations, the Europeans' mythologies were reinforced with the travelers' 
when the travelers returned to Europe with reports of monsters and savage lands. As an aside, the Orient was not reduced to the Far East, but it included the Middle East, Africa, and eventually the Americas. Don't forget that Europeans thought that they were going to the Orient when they set foot in the Americas. Their goal was to set their hands on Asian resources. Countries then for the colonizer were only the European nation states with their bureaucracies, their established social hierarchies, their legal frameworks, etc. Any other bureaucracy or social hierarchy that wasn't the colonizers wasn't recognized as such. The colonizer then with a self-perception as the social order to reign in the chaos of the vast lands and disorganized peoples. The colonial occupation, of course, as the foundational act of a non-consensual form of domination. Here, I want to make an aside. What do I talk about when I talk about non-consensual domination? Colonialism obstructs the consent of the colonized to be governed. The colonized does not agree to this government. It is a forceful occupation and a line grabbing, which are the two initial stages of colonialism. There is no negotiation, no relationship of equals that would make this exchange possible. It is forceful and domineering. And you might wonder why I am now spending time discussing issues around consent while introducing practices that date centuries. Because this non-consensual exchange has been foundational to everything that came after, from the hierarchies of gender and sexual politics that were imposed through the colonial order to the way that we are now subject to non-consensual surveillance by the state or the non-consensual data collections done in the name of marketing. Ours is a culture of non-consent that extends further than the merely sexual and permeates all our interpersonal exchanges and politics. I want to trace this genealogy of lack, on, of lack on consent to the foundational moment of European empire and subsequently to the foundational, foundational moment of the so-called West. Because colonialism is based on a relationship of unequals, a settler-occupier and the occupy, it creates a distinctive class of individuals, the subaltern. The subaltern, a person rendered without agency by social state status. The concept of subalternity was first introduced by the Italian Marxist philosopher Antonio Gramsci in his theories about cultural hegemony. However, it was the Indian philosopher and theorist Gayatri Spivak who borrowed the concept and developed the theories around coloniality and subalternity. I am not going to expand on Spivak's work here, which would merit a separate lecture altogether, 
but I am introducing the basic concept of subalternity insofar as it is useful to explain one of the basic tenets of colonialism vis-a-vis -vis lack of consent, the removal of agency and the creation of an oppressed class through occupation. The settler occupier takes land, he sets his own rule of law. The settler does not negotiate in terms of mutual benefit or desire, and through this process, the subaltern becomes. Colonialism, then, as this system that involves all aspects of the political, citizenship, race, sex, and gender. It is also a system of dominance in terms of intellectual inquiry by imposing Western ways of knowing. Or, to recall, to recall Said again, the us and them binary social relation, which was foundational because it represented the Orient as backward and irrational lands, and therefore in need of Europeans to help it become modern in the Western sense. This subalternity, however, wasn't just a homogeneous system of us versus them or a unified other over whom the colonizer could rule. Instead, subalternity became a sophisticated system of hierarchies that still to this day codifies all social organizations. And this is why I'm, I'm using the notion of coloniality of power from Aníbal Quijano and Maria Lugones as starting points for this line of inquiry. There exists a great number of theorists and cultural critics that have developed conceptual arguments around colonialism and its legacies. However, it was Aníbal Quijano who articulated something that I believe is of utmost importance if we are going to interrogate the contemporary political implications of the creation of new technologies. Namely for Quijano, coloniality remains way past the colonial occupation has already ended. His coloniality of power specifically addresses the living legacy of colonialism in contemporary societies in the form of social discrimination that has outlived formal colonialism and became integrated in succeeding social orders. Coloniality then, as an ongoing project rather than a historical moment that remains in the past. Coloniality as the active living legacy of colonialism, a way of being, a political project with no end in sight. And this is why I have to take a very quick detour and explain why I have an issue with the use of post-colonial in places such as the Netherlands. Post-colonialism or post-colonial studies are preoccupied with the study of the cultural legacy of colonialism and imperialism. I contend that it is impossible to discuss these legacies when colonialism remains an active and hegemonic force of domination. 
Scholars of post-colonial studies, of course, do not imply that the effects are over. But discussions in Europe are almost always hijacked by loud voices, some coming from within academia, that treat colonialism as a malaise of the past, something that happened and that we need to move on from, a fixed point in time, something that remains in the past. You hear this every time someone, especially a black person, wants to discuss the legacy of slavery in contemporary politics and culture, and they're often told that they have a victim mentality and that slavery is a thing of the, of the past. When such is the attitude of the dominant culture, it is impossible to discuss post anything. It would imply that we are over, that it is best to look into the future. This is all ahistorical myopia that refuses to look at the consequences of centuries of settler intervention. Colonialism, then, as a system. The colonial hierarchies were created through a very rigid system that Said named as an us versus them or the other. This system was, in fact, the creation of whiteness and its inaugural moment of whiteness as the top of the racial ladder. To quote Quijano again, the idea of race in its modern meaning does not have a known history before the colonization of America. Perhaps it originated in reference to the phenotypic differences between conquerors and conquered. However, what matters is that soon it was constructed to refer to the supposed differential biological structures between those groups. Social relations founded on the category of race produced new historical social identities in America, Indians, blacks, and mestizos, and redefined others. Terms such as Spanish and Portuguese, and much later European, which until then indicated only geographic origin or country of origin, acquired from then on a racial connotation in reference to the new identities. Insofar as the social relations that were being configured were relations of domination, such identities were considered constitutive of the hierarchies, places, and corresponding social roles, and subsequently of the model of colonial domination that was being imposed. In other words, race and racial identity were established as instruments of basic social classification. In the Cultural Encyclopedia of the Body, Victoria Pitts Taylor traces the racial classification and subsequent quantifications of human beings to the Enlightenment. She points out, however, that the period leading up to and continuing well beyond the Enlightenment wasn't filled with explorations, data collections, and quantifications alone. The human taxonomies and data collections were part of a process of colonial conquest, pillage, and subjugation. The data collected to prove the supposed inferiority or non-humanity of certain groups 
was used to justify the indigenous conquest in the Americas and the transatlantic chattel slavery. The black body subjected to statistical analysis, calculations, and skin tone measurements was deemed non-human as a result of these taxonomies, which in turn were created by a collection of data involving physical or behavioral characteristics of the group in question. Along the same lines in the Americas, the Spanish crown installed the encomienda, a system of forced labor for indigenous people under which a certain percentage of the indigenous population was forcefully assigned to work in agriculture or mining under the directive of conquistadores, who in turn paid taxes to the crowd for this service. Those whose agency was removed through enslavement became merely tools to provide labor for the settler colonialist no longer fully human, no longer subjects with wants, needs, or desires of their own, the enslaved were simply tools to perform unpaid work. And here is the foundational moment of our contemporary history. Insofar as the structure of control of labor, resources, and products consisted of the joint articulation of all the respective historically known forms, a global model of control of work was established for the first time in known history. And while it was constituted around and in the service of capital, its configuration as a whole was established with capitalist character as well. Thus emerged a new, original, and singular structure of relations of production in the historical experience of the world, world capitalism. Up to that point in history, there have been many empires, but none which established a clear racial demarcation between dominator and subaltern, and certainly none where whiteness was defined in terms of phenotypical characteristics with very clear demarcations. To recap then, whiteness through the creation of these racial taxonomies as a dominant way of knowing, a settler, colonizer, and from that moment on, in control of capital and labor. The racial classification of the population and the early association of the new racial identities of the colonized with the forms of control of unpaid, unwaged labor developed among the Europeans the singular perception that paid labor was the white's privilege. The racial inferiority of the colonized implied that they were not worthy of wages. They were naturally obliged to work for the profit of their owners. It is not difficult to find to this very day this attitude spread out amongst the white property owners of any place in the world. And as an aside, I will not expand on this today, but yet another example of the contemporary legacy of the settler mentality is the gig economy and Silicon Valley's disruption model through which, set up through the use of unpaid labor or poorly compensated wages, 
that use other people's resources, including the de facto right to our attention through technologies from which it is impossible to opt out and through which we never consented to use. However, this is not the whole story. And here I am placing Maria Lugones' work at the center of these ideas as well. While Quijano defined coloniality in terms of racial and power structures, he did not account for the gender and sexual politics that resulted from the formation of these hierarchies. What Lugones calls the modern slash colonial gender system. Quijano does not complicate the imposition of rigid gender roles and sexuality, instead accounting only for sexual reproduction while neglecting an equally in-depth analysis of the sexual and gender politics that become the, bas the basics for settler colonial occupation and the subsequent foundation of global capitalism. To quote Maria Lugones, with the expansion of European colonialism, the classification was imposed on the population of the planet. Since then, it has permeated every area of social existence and it constitutes the most effective form of material and intersubjective social domination. Thus, coloniality does not just refer to racial classification. It is an encompassing phenomenon since it is one of the axes of the system of power and as such it permeates all control of sexual access, collective authority, labor, intersubjectivity and the production of knowledge from within these intersubjective relations. Or alternatively, all control over sex, subjectivity, authority and labor are articulated around it. There is a quote in Lugones' Coloniality of Gender that is extremely useful to sum up these arguments. Though everyone in capitalist Eurocenter modernity is both raced and gendered, not everyone is dominated or victimized in terms of them. Colonialism, however, not only established these taxonomies of race, gender, and sex, but also imposed a rigid binary in which only two genders are possible, woman and man. Many pre-colonial societies recognized more than two genders, what we now refer to as intersex or transgender. Yet the colonizer only allowed these rigid models that still continue to this day. Again, why I talk about coloniality instead of colonialism. In this rigid system, female became subordinate to male, even in places such as the Yoruba society, where such subordination was non-existent before. Matriarchal societies were eliminated either through cultural imposition or genocide, sometimes both. Homosexuality was criminalized even in those societies that up to that point had incorporated it as part of the community's life. In this colonial taxonomy of gender, 
classifications became biology-based, and even then, a very limited scope of biology based on observation of external genitalia. A moment ago, I mentioned how colonialism is rooted in non-consent and forceful occupation. Parallel to the creation of racial and gender taxonomies, colonialism incorporated the non-consent into these taxonomies. For instance, how non-white women could not be raped because they were considered property. Rape culture then also becomes foundational to this moment of capitalism. These gender and racial taxonomies further excluded women from the already stringent rules of paid labor. If only white people could be compensated for their work, following the established hierarchies, the labor of non-white women and black enslaved women to bring even more granularity into this model were the least compensated and valued, relegated to forceful reproduction of more bodies to expand the enslaved labor force. All of these rigid systems of classification and these hierarchical formations constituted an episteme, or a system of knowledge that formed the justification for the maintenance and upholding of both racial and gender classifications. Soon after these taxonomies were set in motion, they became the cornerstone of early forms of databases or proto-big data projects before there were digital means of archiving data. The census then, as one of the early big data projects to classify and divide humans into rigid racial and gender categories, separating whiteness from everything else. As the census data became more important as a tool of policy making and economic development, the racial categories acquired more granularity and specificity. You can see in this, you can see in the 1990s US census where Asian people are further broken down in distinct groups. Coincidentally, this happened around the time when some Asian groups started to acquire the status of model minority in the US while others didn't. It was important then to acquire data in regard to these supposed model minorities to contrast and compare it to other non-model groups. The Dutch had their own big data archives, courtesy of the VOC or the Dutch East India companies. The VOC was an early multinational transnational corporation, simultaneously considered a trading company, a shipping company, a proto-conglomerate company, diversifying into multiple commercial and industrial activities, such as international trade, especially intra-Asian trade, shipbuilding, production, and trade of East Indian spices, Formosa and sugarcane, and South African wine. It is considered by many historians to be the first capitalist enterprise in its modern sense. It also traded in enslaved human beings. The archives of the Dutch East India Company are also one of the earliest examples of corporate-owned big data. 
Every piece of cargo that was transported or traded was painstakingly recorded in their manifestos and corporate books. It is through the archives of the Dutch East India Company that we encounter slavery as data taxonomy. The, the enslaved subject counted as a piece of cargo along, alongside 600 pounds of honey and 370 pounds of sandalwood. If in 1759, the Swedish scientist Carl Linnaeus, who usually referred to his work claiming that God created by Linnaeus organized, gave us the taxonomy as a way of looking at the world and situating the white man of the top. By 1789, it was the Dutch East India Company that took these data projects to new levels by counting those deemed inferior as pieces of cargo in regards to a bookkeeping project. You might all be tempted to view these data collections and the rigid taxonomies as things of the past, memories of a time where such way of thinking was pervasive. However, that is not the case. Rather than discontinue the use of these taxonomies, they have been extended to every sphere, aggregating data for political or administrative purposes. To quote Torin Monaghan from Regulating Belonging, Surveillance, Inequality, and the Production of Objection, viewing these dynamics of data aggregation through the lens of surveillance can draw attention to the ways in which unequal control mechanisms define the operations of contemporary institutions and profoundly shape people's experiences and life chances. Surveillance can be understood broadly as the focused, systematic, and routine attention to personal details for the purposes of influence, management, protection, or direction. Thus, more than simply watching, surveillance practices exert influence and reproduces power relations through technological and non-technological means alike. Through the imposition of categories, processes, and differential forms of exposure, surveillance becomes a project of social ordering and world-making, even if its efficacy at achieving its primary intended goal, crime control, is limited or inconsistent. As deployed today, surveillance manifests a multi as a multiplicity of techniques that conjure coalescence around and mediate the experience of abject subjects. Demographic data such as poverty levels in a community combined with surveys pertaining to white fears of people of color can result in strict and often violent policing under the claim that these communities present quote-unquote structural problems. However, if people of color express fear of being unjustly killed in police interventions or of being discriminated in the job market, their emotions are not coded as part of a structural problem. Instead, they are considered the realm of individual perception and dismissed as such. 
However, whenever a marginalized group expresses an emotional concern, this emotional concern is not going to be aggregated as data, but is going to be treated as a statistically anomaly, not valid for policy or platform making. This data collection, to be considered valid, must always originate from the, from the dominant culture. On the other hand, real estate brokers still evaluate the racial demographics of neighborhoods to determine the value of property. Non-white or poor neighborhoods can see their property values plummet if they fall within the unacceptable percentile of certain measurements. These real estate valuations, based on data collected by the state, can even have an effect in intergenerational wealth and affect families for decades. Healthcare providers can determine cost of coverage of certain demographics based on data such as eating havocs, ethnic predisposition for certain diseases, and eventual health predictions. Data from census and surveys is used to allocate funds for government programs. City councils can regulate educational resource investment on students based on parents' income and predictive models of performance. Funds can be allocated based on expectations from historical data sets. That white fears can result in harmful or even deadly situations for marginalized groups is perhaps best illustrated in the practice of racial profiling. Members of specific groups, such as Black, Latino, Middle Eastern, South Asian, or North African, are perceived as prone to commit crime, potential terrorists, etc., and targeted for police actions that can have deadly results. Racial profiling was first instituted in the US during slavery when in 1693, American court officials gave police legal authority to stop and detain any Negro, freed or enslaved, seen wandering in and around on the streets. Eventually, a practice that was started in European colonies in the Americas would return, repurposed and actualized to the continent as well. The history of racial profiling and its inextricable ties to police are part of the colonial rule to discipline the black and brown body. In the US, cotton plantations formed the backbone of the economy. The black population outnumbered whites and white fear of slave insurrection was rampant. The South Carolina General Assembly enacted then a law requiring that all men over the age of 18 to participate in slave patrols punishable by a fine of $2. Slave patrols in South Carolina, while ongoing since 1671, transformed in this moment from the responsibility of slave owners to the responsibility of every white person. This new law followed the two attempts at black insurrection and reflected a growing fear among property whites of widespread black rebellion. This law served to deputize all of white society against black slaves and free men. 
Slave patrols have full power and authority to enter any plantation and break open Negro houses or any other place where slaves were suspected of keeping arms to punish runaways or slaves found out and even to go as far as executing them at sight. However, you might say that we are past this form of taxonomical, phenotypical classifications. In the year 2019, in the Netherlands, these exact same classifications remain firmly in place, rooted in the culture and informing every single government decision and state policy. In late 2016, the Central Bureau of Statistics declared that it would stop dividing people into allochtonen and autochtonen because those two words were too divisive. Up to that point, an allochton, a word that not coincidentally belongs to the field of biology to denote non-native species to an ecosystem, was defined as someone who was born outside the Netherlands or someone who had at least one parent born outside the Netherlands. Some activists celebrated that the Central Bureau of Statistics would stop using these colonial classifications, but instead, what seemed to have flown under the radar is that in replacing that word, the Central Bureau of Statistics added an extra layer of exclusion to their databases. Whereas before, an allochton was someone who had a parent born outside the Netherlands, now exclusion from Dutchness can be traced back to the third generation. This graphic is lifted directly from the uh, Bureau of uh, Statistics. The implications of this project cannot be overstated. The national authority is creating a database of people whose parents were born in the Netherlands, people who themselves were born in the Netherlands, and then labeling them third generation non-Dutch and non-Western. Surely no longer using the word allochton changed something, but nobody said that the change would be for the better. Up to this point, I have traced a genealogy of big data and the taxonomies that inform all these statistics, data points, and archival fields. Basically, these are examples of the type of data that we deem important enough to record, keep track, and preserve. This data, we are repeatedly told, is neutral, just a field in a database, removed from the almost six centuries of history that created such system of classification to begin with. Data, we often hear, is not biased or political, and that in spite of the history of how data came to be. However, databases, are merely the building blocks of algorithms. A database is simply the equivalent of a Lego brick upon which different applications can be built or developed. Data by itself is no more useful than a bunch of post-it notes or index cards. It is what we do with this data that matters. Ultimately, the kind of data we collect and the taxonomies we use says more about our culture than anything else. The machines, 
learn from these data sets. To use a very broad definition of machine learning, machine learning is a field of artificial intelligence that uses statistical techniques to give computer systems the ability to learn. That is, to progressively improve performance on a specific task. From data, but without being explicitly programmed to perform this task. Based on this data, machines learn to make decisions. In Algorithms of Oppression, Safia Noble tracked the way Google's algorithms enforced racial biases and stereotypes in regards to black women. The screen capture shows some of the searches suggested by Google's algorithm when you type why are black women so? The suggestions, needless to say, come informed by the genealogy of data that has been assigned to black women and the specific set of, of attributes and characteristics that since the 18th century, black women and other, black, uh, and other women of color have to contend with. In the first chapter of her book, Dr. Noble writes, I am bringing light to various forms of technological redlining that are on the rise. The near ubiquitous use of algorithmically driven software, both visible and invisible to everyday people, demands a closer inspection of what values are prioritized in such automated decision-making system. Typically, the practice of redlining has been most often used in real estate and banking circles, creating and deepening inequalities by race, such that, for example, people of color are more likely to pay higher interest rates or premiums because they are black or Latino, especially if they live in low-income neighborhoods. Part of the challenge of understanding algorithmic oppression is to understand that mathematical formulations to drive automated decisions are made by human beings. While we often think of terms such as big data and algorithms as being benign, neutral, or objective, they're anything but. The people who make these decisions hold all types of values, many of which openly promote racism, sexism, and false notions of meritocracy, which is well documented in studies of Silicon Valley and other tech corridors. And to this I would add, it is not merely that the people who make programming decisions for algorithms are biased, but that the building blocks of these technologies are based on data fields and taxonomies that were from their inception, a project of exclusion. It is not just that humans enter their own biases into algorithms, but that the entire field of data collection is a perpetuation of colonial biases that have never really gone away. Earlier last year, a new cycle of outrage sort of took over the Netherlands when the Dutch public broadcaster announced that they would stop using the word blank to refer to white people and instead use white. Blank has always been the preferred term of white Dutch since colonial times. They defined themselves as a blank, as a blank state in opposition to the colored other. 
after activists and academics, notably Professor Gloria Becker here in the Netherlands, pointed to the history of this colonial taxonomy, that white slowly started to become mainstream. With last year's announcement by the public broadcaster, the tide seemed to be turning. However, this has deeply angered many Dutch white people who are now claiming that they will refuse this new naming convention and demand that blank remains the default. Of course, erasing the fact that for centuries the Dutch have named others and imposed their own taxonomies elsewhere, which they now have the audacity to call identities. One of the features of colonial power is also the right to name, to designate, to categorize. It is this epistemic project that seeks to assign value and establish hierarchy. We use machines to automate processes that were traditionally undertaken by humans. We have imbued these machines of the same epistemes that we have been passing to our human children for the past 500 plus years. These epistemes have become our cultural markers and imprints, and we perpetuate the notion that they are scientific undertakings. This arbitrarily created episteme became the database, and in turn, the database populated our algorithms. When I started this lecture, I said that coloniality is an ongoing process that did not end when the settler left, but rather it is a process that utilizes the cultural imprint of the colonizer to continue reproducing the same biases and hierarchies that have plagued us since the 16th century. If machines can be, fed, can be fed data based on the gender or racial taxonomies of one Swedish man who in the 17th century thought of himself as God's organizer, then certainly our machines will only continue learning the very same stereotypes and alienating politics that have subjugated us for centuries. Thank you very much. <laughs>